I heard a good morning Kevin that time. That was awesome. That was so personal. Thank you. Uh, well, perhaps you have not heard of the great plumbing problem of the 23rd year of the second millennium of this common era. Um, but two months ago, uh, there was a three-week stretch that was full of all kinds of angst and bitterness, particularly directed at me somehow. But in my household, you know, 21st century, like running water is an amazing thing. But running water is supposed to run into your house and out of your house. Sometimes it runs back into your house, and that creates problems. And so uh, three weeks of trying different things and all this stuff, I finally have to call a professional. Professional comes out, and it's not a, it's not a pretty thing um, or a delightful smell or anything like that, but find out there's a real problem here. And so this first professional says $10,000. And I say, <laughs> right. Uh, there's another professional says $7,500. And I say, <laughs> I have two hands and I have a shovel. <laughs> so, uh, so thankfully, and what's it for? You dig, you dig with this. And so um, I needed to dig a lot, and uh, a couple of friends that are so kind, and my father helped me at various points. But um, from, from what I understood of what we needed was I needed a trench that was four feet wide and four feet deep and 26 feet long. So if you can visualize that with me, um, that's Kevin out there for hours shoveling. <laughs> he, so sadistic. Um, but man, I, I'm shoveling away and shoveling away and shoveling away. And I remember at one point as I'm down inside this, this ditch and I'm shoveling and it's like one, like you start counting them. <laughs> like, this is depressing too. But with every shovelful, I'm thinking like, you know, I wish I could just, I could just be at the end of this. Like what's that last shovelful going to feel like when I throw that last shovelful out? But then I continue thinking, because this is how my weird brain works. I'm like, but if I got from here to there without the experience of every shovelful between it, if I were given that gift, that wish, would I appreciate the gift? Would I even recognize it as a gift if I didn't know what the actual cost of that was? Like every shovelful, like if I didn't feel that, then what's the point of the wish? I'm like, well, that's really depressing that like a wish just doesn't even play itself out as a wish. And so I'm just, I'm thinking through all these things. And um, to fast forward a little bit for you, uh, what happens is I dig my 26 foot long trench and um, here I've got calluses forever for it. Um, Get to the end of it. The the professional who is supposed to supply me with the things that are needed to go in this ditch, um, he looks around and says, yeah, you need like four times this much space. Um, I did not dig the rest of it, by the way. Um, Because every one of those shovelfuls coming out of that ditch told me there is value to someone else doing this. (laughs) (laughs) There is value to someone else doing this. And so um, the price, ultimately, I think maybe because he saw what I had done and felt bad for me, but the price became $4,800, and I was like, I can stomach that. Uh, So there we go. Um, It gave me an appreciation for the ability and value of others to do a job because I saw and I felt what the job was. I could value someone else because I saw the need and I saw their worth. Do you sometimes struggle to see value in others? I I think if we're all honest, it's easy to see value in some people and not so easy to see value in other people. Sometimes it's like, (laughs) count that off as a loss. Like, 
it's, it's just, it's hard sometimes to see the value or the usefulness of some people. And so we're in the book of Philemon, and Pastor Chris had us on a, on a one-off last week going through the Lord's Prayer beautifully, but this week we're back into Philemon, so I want to remind you of what's happening in this very short one-chapter letter. Um, Philemon is a wealthy man who owned slave, slaves, possibly plural, but he had a house big enough to host a home church. And so this is a man of means. He owns a slave named Onesimus who has run away from him. Onesimus is a runaway slave and Onesimus encounters Paul, who's a missionary church planter, who is going throughout the Gentile known world, trying to plant as many churches as he can. He's trying to advance the kingdom of God, sharing the gospel. And Onesimus and Paul collide. Paul becomes a spiritual father to Onesimus as Onesimus becomes a follower of the way of Jesus. He becomes a believer. And so the gospel has changed his life, changed who he is, but he still has this history of like, but I'm a runaway slave. Paul knows this. And so Paul's in this weird position where he's like, I know you now deeply. I love you, brother. But I also know Philemon and what you did was wrong. You ran away from him. When, again, this is, this is not chattel slavery as we often think in American history. Um, most people in servitude of, of some form of slavery actually put themselves there. It was, it, was a, it was a way of trying to achieve upward mobility and so forth. So Philemon has left when he was not supposed to. And so he has, or I'm sorry, Onesimus has left Philemon when he was not supposed to. So Philemon feels wronged by Onesimus. Paul knows Onesimus and Philemon. So this is awkward, awkward turtle, but I'm sending you back. You need to make this right. You gotta make this right. And so last time, in this letter, uh, we covered where Paul says, I'm asking you to do the right thing. I could command you from his authority he has an apostle in Christ. He could command him to do what is right, but he says, instead, I appeal to you on the basis of love. Do what's right. Receive him back, not as a slave, but receive him back as a brother. Because remember, we started it with the greeting where he's, he's using familial language. Brother, sister, all these things. You're in the family of God. You've been adopted in here. It's grace that will preside over all this. And so that's what he has made the ask. And now we pick up in verse 11. If you'll turn in your copy of scripture with me, Philemon, verse 11. It's also gonna be on the screen behind me. So Paul writing, he has made his request of Philemon to receive Onesimus back the right way, not as a slave, but as a brother. So let's do this in a way that shows the gospel has changed our hearts. And now look at what he says in verse 11. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. As you think about that, in the context of he has made his request, hey, do the right thing here, Philemon. Receive him back in light of the gospel. Receive him back differently. I know he's wronged you, but receive him back with grace. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. Uh, verse 11, once he was useless to you, but now he's useful to both you and me. That's very strange. Like, what a way to talk about somebody. Like, it's already, like, it's uncomfortable enough that this is a slave. And now you talk about this slave, this runaway slave, sending him back to him, do the right thing once he was useless to you. <laughs> but now he's useful to both of us. So receive him back. Like, what is that? It's, and, and here's the thing. Like, a lot of it is just honestly lost on us because of the translation and languages. Uh, to go to English from Greek as this was written, um, we lose a lot of this because the name Onesimus, guess what it means? It means useful. The name Onesimus means in Greek useful. It means profit or advantage. 
And so Paul is saying, hey, Philemon, I know Onesimus, a slave to you. He was an official at one point. Like, it was, it was a prophet. Like, it was to your advantage to have this guy working for you. But then he left. And he left on bad terms. It's possible he took things. We, we don't know. Um, it seems to allude to that later in this. But, like, he has wronged you. A slave who has run away from you and wronged you is no longer useful to you. He's useless. He's once useless to you as a runaway slave, but now he's useful both to you and to me. Because as a Christian, he's now true to his name. But he is useful. And now, do you see how much value Paul sees in Onesimus, who is useful? Look at verse 12. I am sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. I'm sending my very own heart. I mean, how many people in your life, if you had to write a letter like to reconcile some friends to each other or to introduce somebody or whatever it is, like you're talking about someone else. How many people in your life would you talk about in such a way that you say, as I send them, like, no, I'm sending my heart to you. That's a, that's a very deep relationship. That's, that's amazing value and worth. Um, again, language stuff here, but the original, the literal translation of what we see as heart is actually bowels. Um, they, w- they would speak of bowels. This this. It's meant to convey a deep, internal, emotional response. Like, I feel this within me. When I send him back, like, I feel the turmoil in me. I feel this emotional, guttural response. And we, we know that that's actually still true today. How many of you, you know the, the butterflies in your stomach? Saw that girl? Third row right there? Whew. I felt like, oh, man. You get that feeling inside of you. Like, what beauty? What worth? Oh, I cherish that. I treasure her. And so you feel that. It's, it's a combination of physiological and psychological factors that cause us to feel emotions in our gut, in your bowels. And that's what it's saying here. And this, this is why the butterflies in the early days of romance is because of this brain-gut connection and the enteric nervous system that makes stress or strong emotions um, cause things like the butterflies or nausea or something that we won't talk about. Um, but you, it, it affects you. They're like, what goes on in my brain somehow translates into something happening in my bowels or the autonomic nervous system. Um, this is what regulates your physiological response to emotional stimuli. I'm, I'm reading this because this is way over my head here. Um, this includes increasing your heart rate, blood pressure, and direction of blood flow away from the non-essential digestive tract in preparation for fight or flight. And so when you get really scared and your body goes into that fight, flight, or freeze mode, you hope it's fight or flight, but you feel like, oh, I feel crazy, or like, oh, like what's happening? It's because blood is actually being diverted away from the digestive tract because your body's like, you need blood elsewhere, let's go. This is, um, this is why strong emotions can also trigger the vagus nerve um, that also connects the brain to various organs, including the gut. Although it's, it's, it's strange to think, but like the things that happen and affect us psychologically also affect us physiologically. And so when he says, literally, I'm sending them back to you. I'm sending my very own bowels. That helps us to understand why he says heart in the way that we translate this. Because we think much more in terms of like the amazing second installment of Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, Dead Man's Chest. You with me? No? Come on. (laughs) We have a TV. We have a TV. Davy Jones. Davy Jones has this curse of the Dead Man's Chest. And so Davy Jones was once in love with Calypso. And so he loves her so much, but there's this deep betrayal. There's this great pain that he experiences and this love loss. And so what does he do? He doesn't want to feel that. 
because he's a ferocious bad guy. And so he cuts his own heart out. He puts it into a chest, locks it, and hides it away. And the rest of the movie is all these people competing, trying to capture his heart so they can either control him or kill him. Why? Because his heart is the most vital part of him. It's what he would cherish most. It's what he would need to protect most. And so he doesn't want to feel the pain. He doesn't want to feel anymore. So he cuts it out and then he locks it away and hides it. He doesn't just get rid of it because he knows he needs it. And so we protect this thing that's most valuable and necessary for life. And so for them, bowels. I feel it in my gut. For us, heart. It's, it's this vital organ that we must protect. And so that's why we'd say, I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. I'm sending my very own heart. Paul, speaking of Onesimus, says, here comes my heart. Again, who do you think of? Maybe it's in your immediate family, but could you think, like Paul, of, of the greater family of God, of other people in the family of God that you would speak of them in such a way that when you send them, you say, there goes my heart. Like I would protect them, I would cherish them like my own vital organ inside my chest cavity. Like protect them, cherish them. Why? Because it comes down to this. The gospel gives value to all of us. The gospel gives great value to all of us. Once he was useless, but now he's useful to you and me. He has great value. Do you see the way that he jumps in and he helps? Do you see the way he's serving? Do you see the way that he cares about the same things that we care about? And beyond that, to not just reduce him to his utility, what he's useful for, but to see the value of his personhood, that this person is made in the image of God and that image has been restored by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Do you see the beauty of that? That him, like us, he was a wretched sinner, dead in his sin, living in rebellion against God. Even if he was delusional enough to think that he was living for the glory of God, he was good enough for any of these things that we can just be deceived into thinking. Like, no, the only way is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's for us to realize we cannot do it on our own. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God, that God the Son would come and take our place and absorb the very wrath of God, and he would step up and stand in our place, be condemned, nailed to a cross, and the record of death that stood against us is now nailed to the cross. It's been erased. It's been wiped clean because Jesus has paid it in full. This is the way that Romans 3, 23 and 24 says it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who? All. Every single one of us has sinned, meaning we have missed the mark. And it's not just our behavior, it's even the posture of our hearts that we are born in iniquity that it is, it is actually genetically passed on to us. And so we are born dead in sin, which is crazy to think, physically coming to life, but as a dead person. And our only hope for life, because we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is for that God to step in and bring life. And how did he do that? We are justified or made right freely for us, freely for us, but by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, meaning that it is free for us, that we do nothing to earn the favor of God. It is grace, which means undeserved favor. But that grace comes, and what did it look like? Jesus, who is grace upon grace. It looked like great cost to him, free to us, but the cost of our salvation was the very life of the Son of God. 
that he would have to die, that in dying, what a price tag. The price of his life for our life, that his own life, his love, his grace, his righteousness given to us is the price tag that has now been placed on you and I as his children. So what great worth to know, Christian, that you are forgiven. Like whatever you've stumbled in this week, whatever you have failed, whatever it is that keeps you awake at night, the thing that you wish so badly you could just know that no one's ever gonna find out, whatever it is. Did you know that you were forgiven? You're free. Because of what Jesus has done, like put a price on that. Just the experience of that, but to know that it is so much more than that. You're of immeasurable worth because he has made you so. It's nothing that you can do. It's what God has done. That gospel gives us great value to you personally, individually, to you, believer. You have great worth. You have great usefulness. But God did not just save a person. He saved a people, a people that he would call his own, that he would call in such affectionate terms as his bride. This is this grand love story the scripture starts with essentially a wedding. As Adam is created, it's not good for him to be alone. He needs others. And so he creates Eve. And now Eve, man and woman from man, they come together and God officiates over this wedding as he presents the bride to the husband. And so scripture starts with a wedding and there's this colossal failure and we fast forward, the prophets are speaking again and again and again through this language of marriage and we get to the end of the scriptures and what is to come? This bride. Presented in splendor. She's adorned herself for the lamb. And who's this bride? It is us. And the, the insanity of this is that it is God himself making us beautiful to present us to himself. Like, what a wonderful husband. That he owns our beauty at his own cost. That it was his shed blood that would wash us and cleanse us, to purify us, to present us to himself because he wants to be with us. Like, what beauty. The, 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 the consummation of all of this is in the picture of a wedding feast. Like wedding bells ringing. It's a party. It's the party that starts the party that goes on forever and now we'll be united with him face to face to be with God forever. And it looks like a marriage feast. Like, oh, what is this? The God would make us his people. But his people, together, we need each other. Um, I, I heard this recently from a pastor talking about um, there, there's this great tendency, and I have lived through seasons of this, um, where, where church can hurt. And we know it's, it's popular to talk about church hurt right now, and that's tragic because it's, it's real. And we're, we're all broken sinners, and this is, this is why Jesus knew that and said things like, forgive each other, because the assumption is you're going to wrong each other. And so we have to live in the way that he has forgiven us. We're called to forgive each other and all stuff. And it's led to so much hurt. And I don't want to minimize any of that at all. It's real. And I hope that you are not living in pain by yourself. Don't be alone. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to some other believers here. And walk through what healing looks like together. Because as this pastor was talking about, you know, sometimes we're hurt or we become disillusioned or whatever it is and we think like, my faith is still so important to me. I will still be a Christian. I'll still be a follower of Jesus, but I can do my own thing. I'll study my Bible for myself. I'll sing songs by myself. I'll pray by myself. I'll do all these things. Like I, can, I can be a better Christian in my home than I can in that aisle. And so it's, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily wrong that you can, you can be a Christian and not be active in a church. But it's kind of like a husband saying, 
I can still be married to my wife and never come home to her. That doesn't make sense. And why? Because we actually need each other. This is the way God has designed it. And that can be hard. But it's also so beautiful and life-giving. And if it's not, then, then find a church where it is. Find a church where it is. We need each other. This is the way the preacher in Hebrews chapter 3 says it. He says in verse 12 and 13, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. That's a real warning. A real warning. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. What do you call them? Brothers and sisters. It's like me standing here saying to you, hey, Christian, listen, be careful. Watch out so there won't be in you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Because sin is deceptive. And when you're deceived, you don't know that you're deceived. Otherwise, you wouldn't be deceived. But sin can creep in when we're in isolation. It can creep in and deceive us to where suddenly we're blinded by it. We don't even know. Like, we're wallowing in our pity. We're wallowing in suffering and all these things in isolation when if we were just with our brothers and sisters, they could say, no, 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 no. I see this. I see this thing. And let me help you. Because it absolutely looks like Jesus said, like, what are you worried about the splinter in your brother's eye when there's a plank sticking out of your head? But that doesn't mean you never worry about the splinter in your brother's eye. It just means be cognizant of the plank in your own. Let's deal with that. But then, yes, help your brother with the splinter. We need each other. We have to encourage each other. How often? It says daily. While it is still called today. Hey, is today still called today? Yeah. So we need this. We need each other to encourage each other daily so that none of us is hardened by sin's deception. As I, as I think this week through, like, what are the greatest needs for us in regards to valuing each other, seeing the usefulness of each other as a family of God, this passage is what came to mind, but I just keep thinking, like, man, we can't be so soft. And I don't, I don't want to be hurtful here, but we can't be so soft that we can never receive a rebuke. Yes. We have to be willing to hear when we have wronged someone or we're in that sin that is deceptive, we have to be able to hear our brothers and sisters in love speak what is true and say, that's not okay. And then we have to be courageous enough to actually care enough for our brothers and sisters to speak up when we see sin in their life and say, that's not okay. That's not the way of Jesus and so let's change because that's not who you are. And so I'm calling you to something better because that's not who you are. Who you are is who God says. And he says, you're holy, so act holy. And we have to do that for each other. We have to care enough for each other to do this. Let's care for each other because we need each other. Do you know that holiness really does matter? It is absolutely God who will finish what he began, Philippians 1.6. He is the one who started this. He is the one who will finish this. He is the one sanctifying us. His spirit is the one that is conforming us to the image of Jesus. And yet he calls us into that, to be active in that with you. That together, Let's care about holiness. Let's care about obedience. That it's wonderful for us as a church to put such a high value on the word of God and never will we compromise from that while I have any say in it. But it's not just about knowing what is right. It's also doing it. It's, it's being obedient to the, the Jesus that we say is Lord and King. That we actually obey him. 
And we see the beauty. Remember how this started with Pastor Tim? That real freedom is living within the right restraints. It's not an oppressive yoke. It's actually light and easy. He's gentle and lowly. And he's calling us into what life to the fullest really looks like. And that's amazing. So let's step into that all the more. Celebrate and press in. It's going to require a lot, though, to get this. As we live in a day and age where, like, I am so convinced, after planting this church four years ago, like, the greatest obstacle of any, you know what it is? Time. Just time. We are in such a rush to do so many things all the time. Our schedules are insane. So like, I hear people like, I just, I don't feel like I'm connecting and things. Like, oh, have you tried this or this or this or this or this? Like all these things, like we're, we're trying. And you're like, oh, I don't have time. To, I, I got this and this and this. And I think of my own family schedule. It's like, there's always something happening. You have to put these limits on things. Like, well, we can only do this. We can only do this. Like, there's just so much that's demanding our time and attention. And this says, daily. <laughs> daily. Encourage each other daily. It doesn't say encourage each other weekly on a Sunday morning. It says daily. If you were in the family of God, this call is to encourage each other daily. And to make that happen, it's going to require a reworking of our entire lives agenda. It's a reframing of how we view what the church is. That this is the church, but it is not the totality of the church. It's us, the people, gathering continually. It's daily. It's this tension that we feel that I need to be connected to you more than just when I can stand up here on a stage and share what God has revealed to me this week. And you need that with each other. And so we offer these, these different vehicles for that, like be in a home group, be in a discipline practicing partnership where you think about what is the discipline of the month? It's October, it's generosity. And you have a conversation about like, how have you learned to be a more generous person? What's hard about that? Like, well, maybe we need to talk about your finances. Like, where is my money going? Like, there's, there's so many things. And you know, like, that can sound terrifying, especially in our culture. Like, how much money do you make? Who wants to willingly tell you that? Like, how much did you spend last month on coffee? <laughs> what? <laughs> I can say that easily because I don't drink coffee. <laughs> but those conversations that we, we, we kind of bristle at and we want to, we wanna, no, 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 that's not okay. What if you just ran headlong into them? with someone that you knew loved you. Like, hey, I know you love me, and so it's safe. Let me just open up what's going on in my life. And this is not just fine, this is everything. Let me just tell you about how I handle with my kids, where I'm struggling. And all these things, when you invite others in, and that is the way of Jesus, to live in the light, to love each other, to encourage each other. All these things we need. And as we grow as a church, um, this may be awkward if you're new here, but like kind of some inward dialogue for a moment. As we grow, there's going to be this natural tension of it's changing. And I loved what we had. And there's great beauty to that. That you should feel some tension. But we live for the mission of the kingdom of God. And so we love that more people get to step into this community where you can belong, be known, and be loved. But as you feel that tension of there's more people here, and suddenly I don't know everybody, we have to break this mindset that thinks like, because I don't know everybody, I'm not known. Knowing everybody and being known are not synonymous. And so we shift from, oh, I know everybody, to, no, I am known. 
I'm known in the places, the spheres where I can be known, and I can help anyone in here be known. That has to be our missional posture. That I am known. And that means in other spheres, like I'm in a home group where these people know my life. And if I'm in the hospital, they're the first ones that are going to show up. Before Pastor Kevin or any of the others show up, these are my people. They know me. They know what questions to ask me. They, they laugh with me when they know that something is joyful. They cry with me when they know that something is hurtful. These are my people. Or you get it even smaller. These are the ones that, that are discipling me as I disciple them. These are my discipline practicing partners. That we get together, we, even if it's a phone call or some text messages, whatever it is, and we just talk, we check in. How's your soul? Huh, not so good. It's amazing. This, like, God has been just so kind in this season. I just feel so, so like, whatever it is. We have those. Be in a ministry team. Because again, it's bringing the, the broad sphere down into a smaller one. So now there's a team and you have a common goal and mission. And you're, you're working together. You're praying together in your huddles weekly and all these things. You've got to be in those places where you can truly belong, be known, and be loved. Be in home groups, ministry teams. Go for walks on the trail, talking to other believers. Be in the coffee shops. Be at the breweries. Invite people to your dinner table. Eat together a lot. Change your habits of who do you text a lot and how do I just make those texts daily somehow come back to the way of Jesus? Reframe things. And, and, if, and if you are unsettled by the growth that we've experienced as a church, I want you to know, like, no one's upset with you for that. We love you. And, and, and I acknowledge the tension that comes with growth. I don't want to walk through that with you. And I want to assure you, you can belong, be known, and be loved. This is still your church. For those of us who have been here from the beginning, to those of us, it may be your first week. The gospel is what does this for us. Jesus is what holds us together. This is our confession that he is Lord, he's mighty to save, and we're walking in his way. The plan is still to multiply, by the way. Uh, elders had a retreat a couple weeks ago, and, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about what's it going to look like, because we have said from the beginning, our aim is somewhere around 300, and then to, to multiply locally. And that's why we have seven elders or pastors, because the idea is some of us are going, and there will be tension in that, and that's okay. We will celebrate, because we're going to ask for many people, like, hey, if you live closer to wherever we plant the next one, go be part of that. And it's still going to be the same gospel community. And so this is the goal. But let's step into it. Back to Philemon. Paul says that Onesimus is very useful. Why? Why make this claim of Onesimus being useful? What makes him useful? Useful for what? For everything I'm talking about. It's living in a way that would honor the Lord. It's being who we were created to be. That Isaiah, God speaks through the prophet and says, my people called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You exist for the glory of God. You do not exist to just make it through this life. You do not exist to see how much you can accumulate. You do not exist to see what you can achieve. You exist for the glory of God. And everything you do, whether you eat or drink, do it unto the Lord. You do it to the glory of God. Everything about life can be Godward. This is worship. That we do it all to the glory of God. And what that looks like in a way that we do not like right now so much culturally. I'm not saying this is true of us. I hear wonderful stories of you stepping into obedience to this, but it looks like making sure the world knows how they can be brought back into the image of God that has been marred, but it can be restored. And that is to share the gospel. The gospel is the saving power of God. And so 
We must share this good news. Jesus has called us to do it. We must share this good news. Onesimus is useful because he has stepped into the mission with them. Look, we're all living for the mission of the king. We are obedient. We submit to the king. Onesimus is now part of that. And so let's go, Philemon. Come on, what you're doing in your house with that church, that's beautiful. I'm sending another warrior. He's gonna come fight with you. Be part of the mission of God. Let's fill the world with the glory of God. You know, last week, Pastor Chris took us to the Lord's Prayer. What does it start with? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And there's a couple of ways to interpret that. Um, it was beautiful. I'm not saying that I disagree. But I've wrestled with this a lot in my life because for so long I heard that, hallowed be thy name. And think like, it's true. His name is holy. He's to be revered. He is other. He's transcendent. God is hallowed. His name is his personhood. And yet, the other way to see that is that's an ongoing tension in this world that it is not actually yet revered across this planet. And so we say, yes, it is true in the kingdom under his reign. His name is to be holy. But beloved, is it actually holy in your life? Do you revere his name? Do you live under his hand? Do you place yourself humbly under God so that he could exalt you? Do you live like his name is truly holy? And then when we do that, we're inviting the world in to see his name really is. He's hallowed. He's holy. He's to be revered. And we share this gospel to say, you too can be part of this. You can be holy because you were meant to be. You were created to be. But the only way is Jesus. The good news that God would love us so much that he would come for us and he would die for us and he would raise again, coming back from the dead, having conquered sin and death and he's alive forevermore and he says, I'm the first fruit you're gonna follow. As sure as the resurrection of Jesus is your resurrection, Christian, that you too will rise up to life forever with him. Oh, to be with God. Yes, we can clap. Will this be a clapping church? <laughs> oh, it's good news. Can you believe it? Can you believe this good news? Jesus in Matthew 9, uh, 36 to 38 says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus said similar things multiple times throughout the Gospels. One of those times is on the, on the coattails of a radical conversation he had with a woman at a well in a land where they should not be as Jews and all this stuff. But as he's walking away and the disciples are in this confusion, like, what are we doing here? Why were you talking to her? This is not like nothing about this is right. And Jesus, in some translations, he's recorded as saying, the fields are white for harvest. And it's because um, the grain that was grown across this region would sprout, and as it would ripen, it would become white. And so you'd look out on the fields and the rolling hills, and you'd say, wow, it's like snow. It's white. And Jesus is looking at people. He says, the fields are white for the harvest. They're ready. The problem is, who's going to go? Who's going to go and start collecting? Beloved, the fields are orange for the harvest. Because what we do is we bring in a bunch of clay and fill dirt. Everywhere you look around here, there's more and more development. Why? Because there's more and more people. Spend two minutes looking up the growth rate of the community that you live in. The fields are white for the harvest pray to the Lord for more workers to come in. And then, let's get to work. 
Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your obedience, your humility, your submission, your humbling of yourself to the point of death so that we could live. That's, that's such good news. Uh, it blows our minds, but God, we thank you for it. We are overwhelmed by it and we rejoice in it. God, would you help us to care and be obedient and sharing this good news with the world in our own communities, with our own neighbors next door, as we look towards a holiday that can be contested. God, I pray that we would, we would be shrewd and that we would use these opportunities when there's not another time in the year when our neighbors are actually out and want to interact. So would you help us to make much of this, to make much of you, to let your gospel be known, to see your kingdom advanced, to see that we are all useful, that we all have a role to play in this mission that you've given us. So God, I thank you for this church, what it means to me personally. I ask that you would bless it. Be with your people. I love you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.